Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Alcina Lloyd, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be joining us for our 10th episode of Honest Conversations, a mini-series on minority home ownership. In today's episode, I interviewed John Bryant, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, who is also the founder of the Promise Homes Company on why Atlanta has become a hotbed for minority entrepreneurs and how it is impacting financial education and home ownership in the market. But before you listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Caliber Home Loans is committed to helping customers at all stages of home ownership. Whether you're the first in your family to buy a home or just a first-time home buyer, our focus is on getting you into the home of your dreams and helping you stay there. Contact Caliber Home Loans if you'd like to learn more. I'm your host, Alcina Lloyd, and this is Honest Conversations. Honest Conversations is a show that provides listeners with a greater perspective on how race, housing, and wealth intersect and what experts are doing to close the gap. Today, my guest is John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, an organization that focuses on inclusion by equipping underserved communities with the financial tools and education they need to secure a better future. Notably, Bryant is also the founder of the Promise Homes Company, which is one of the largest minority-controlled owners of institutional quality single-family residential rental property in the United States. Thanks for joining us, John. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Of course. Thank you so much. Now, John, you boast a hefty resume. In 2016, you were selected as the American Banker Innovator of the Year. You've been an advisor to the last three sitting U.S. presidents. Time Magazine recognized you as a leader for the future in 1994. And if that wasn't impressive enough, you are the only American citizen who has ever inspired the changing of a name of a federal building on the White House campus, which relates to the U.S. Treasury Annex Building being renamed the Freedmen's Bank Building. Before we start today's conversation, can you let us know even more about your background? How did financial literacy become a passion of yours? And can you tell us a bit more about Operation Hope and the Promise Homes Company? Sure. I believe that we're sitting in a moment in history right now. And, you know, history doesn't feel historic when you're sitting in it. It just sort of feels like another day. Um, But that doesn't mean the moment we're in is not, in fact, historic. And I think that Today, you're going to achieve social justice, or you're going to see social justice through an economic lens. And that's the work of Operation Hope. That's the new civil rights issue, which I call civil rights, S-I-L-V-E-R. It's a movement that is more so seen, or will see the impact in the business suites than you will see it in the mean streets of America or around the world. It's just a, a new way to tackle old problems, social justice through an economic lens. Um, And so all of my work really is about four things today. Um, Number one is uh, building an economic infrastructure, uh, a sustainable, rebootable, scalable economic infrastructure for uh, people of color. Number two is uh, unleashing untapped human capital at scale. So point number three is becoming America's financial coach, uh, sort of the private banker for the working class, the struggling class, 
and the middle class. Number four is to become a conscious on capitalism for all. Thank you for answering that, John. And we're going to touch on those four things you mentioned. I wanted to bring you on the show to discuss financial literacy and the home ownership rate for Black Americans, specifically in one of the fastest growing metros for the demographic. As a citizen of Atlanta, Georgia, you work in a market that has a large African-American community. In fact, according to the most recent data from the Metro Atlanta Chamber, data shows the market is one of the fastest growing metro areas in the nation, and Black Americans account for nearly 34% of its total population. That being said, the racial difference in income in the city of Atlanta is stark. As census data shows, the median annual household income for Black households in the city of Atlanta is under $36,000, while it's over $100,000 for white households. According to the Chamber, these numbers explain why the poverty rate for Blacks in the city of Atlanta is 30.2%, while it's at 8.1% for whites. Now, John, my question for you is, how do these income differences impact the home buying pursuits of Black Americans in Atlanta's housing market? Well, it's everything, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So it's everything as to why and how, but the what is different. So those numbers are all, of course, correct. It is also correct that Atlanta is the number one city in America for black wealth creation through black business. It is also correct that this is the largest economy in the South and the only international city in the South built by black and white hands working together. The problem has been in the 60s, you had this obsessive focus on the five pillars of success. As much education as you can shove down your throat for everybody, understanding the math, economics, how does the business work, Three, family structure and resiliency. Four, self-esteem and confidence. This is all from my last book, Up From Nothing. Five, um, really um, role models and environment. So you have a group of people really coming out of the 60s era and those folks and the children of those folks, the grandchildren of those folks, and then those who flow it, who move here from elsewhere that are really prospering and doing very well. And then you have another group who uh, didn't get the memo on money who were locked out of the opportunity, whose family structure was not stable and resilient. Maybe there wasn't even a father at home, whose role models, let's just say, were different in the neighborhood. Uh, And so if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be a 10th and who did not understand financial literacy. And so it's what you don't know that you don't know that's killing you, but you think you know. So this problem here really is green, not so much black. But the things I just mentioned in an ecosystem or in a targeted zip code that happens to be all Black creates Black poverty. So 100% of the troubling shootings in this country with police in the last five years have all been in 500 credit score neighborhoods. So you combine low financial literacy with a 500 credit score neighborhood, you know, with limited to no access to capital, with low education levels, uh, you know, it it creates a problem. How do you reverse that? It's just the opposite of, of what we just discussed. So the good news is there are a lot of folks here who have been able to overcome these barriers. Well, look at me. I'm from Compton, California in South Central LA, homeless for six months of my life. I mean, I am technically, statistically, the bottom of the pyramid. Um, High school education, which was my education. I I didn't go to four years of a fancy college, even though I encourage all my employees to do that and my family to do that. But I, I own 700 homes in Atlanta. So I'm the largest minority-controlled owner of single-family rental homes in America through a company called the Promise Homes Company, uh, which, by the way, is providing financial literacy to its residents and providing minority contracts or contracts to minorities 
uh, at the rate of 60% of all contracts and giving folks a chance to go from rent to own. And I'm, I'm trying to buy even more properties. But that company didn't exist before 2017. That's the power of financial literacy. All right. Well, you've already kind of touched on this, and I want to highlight it in my next question. Now, we talked about the bad, and now I want to highlight the good. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, an Atlanta-based publication, claims that after years of being denied opportunity and lack of generational wealth, more African-Americans are now enjoying greater financial success through entrepreneurship and real estate acquisitions in Atlanta, indicating while some statistics show a growing racial wealth gap, African-Americans in Metro Atlanta still fare far better in many financial categories than anywhere else in the nation. There are many reasons for this, including landmark legislation in 1974 by the city of Atlanta that not only opened doors for African-American businesses, but encouraged the creation of city contracts. So, John, why has Atlanta been so great for economic pursuits of Black Americans, and how has that impacted financial literacy? You mentioned the empire that you were able to create. So how are other citizens in Atlanta working towards better financial health? Well, the original Atlanta miracle was created really with large part due to Mayor Maynard Jackson, who would not allow the city to have a contract with anyone unless they participated with contracts with everyone. So mainstream had to partner with minority. That created a foundation of black wealth in this country, in this city, I'm sorry. And then you had Ambassador Andrew Young who followed that with what he called public purpose capitalism. And that then in part created uh, Atlanta to the international city of the South. Uh, this city is a place where you can still buy a property and it's cheaper to own the home than it is to rent. And when I got here, you could buy a home for $50,000, actually. That's, you can believe that. That was 10 years ago. But you can buy a decent home here, a middle-class home for $100,000, $120,000, $150,000. And with low interest rates, record low interest rates and a decent credit score, you, you may actually literally be paying less for a mortgage and property taxes than you would if you rent it. So I, I think a lot of folks got the memo, again, financial literacy. Why do I want to rent someplace that really doesn't want me with money I don't have <laughs> uh, to impress people I don't know about things that don't matter? Or do I want to buy a place in my own neighborhood that's going to go up in value um, and I'm really creating my own generational wealth? And so I think that you have a lot of folks here who, who've understood that Atlanta is the new Manhattan. It's the new Los Angeles. It's the new Miami. Those places are too expensive to do what we just mentioned. But you can still do that here. If you buy, by the way, you do that three times. You buy, you rehab, and you rent. You one home for you to live in, two to rent out. You've now created real generational wealth. I mean, you're, you're going to create six or seven figures of, of generational wealth creation for your children and grandchildren. Where else can you do that in this country in a top 10 economic metro? Um, you know, this is a top 20 economy in the world. This is a top 31 economy. If you're a country in the world, it's a top 10 economy in the country. But yet you still buy a home for $100,000, $150,000. Unbelievable. You talked about how Atlanta encourages business diversity. Now I want to switch focus and discuss a recent article from the Urban Institute that claims the increase of racial and ethnic diversity in the U.S. will drive home ownership over the next two decades. According to the organization, they found that even though minority home ownership rates continue to lag, demographic changes alone suggest that over the next two decades, the net growth in homeowners will be solely among families of color. In fact, they claim the states with very different racial and ethnic compositions like Texas, 
Georgia, California, and Minnesota are projected to climb significantly. In Georgia's market, the number of new Georgia households will increase from 3.9 million to 4.8 million, representing a 21.5% increase. The Institute found that in 2020, Georgia was composed of 56% white families, 31% black families, 7% Hispanic families, and 5% Asian and other families. However, by 2040, Georgia is expected to be more diverse as they believe 47% of families will be white, 35% will be black, 10% will be Hispanic, and 8% will be Asian and other. That being said, the home ownership rate in Georgia is expected to fall by 2.6 percentage points overall from 64.7% in 2020, and the change in home ownership rates will defer by race or ethnicity. They project a sizable increase in the home ownership rate for Asian and other households, while there will be a small increase in the Black home ownership rate and no change in the Hispanic home ownership rate, and a small decline in the white home ownership rate from 76.6% to 74.8%. My question for you is, what may be preventing more Black and Hispanic families from entering Atlanta's housing market? This goes back to your original comment uh, where you said I was the only African-American to change a building on the White House campus. That building ties back to 1865, which also ties back to Atlanta's history, where after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln chartered a bank, I'm sorry, created a bank, chartered to teach free slaves about money. So basically, circa 1865 version of financial literacy. You had financial predators following union troops, in this case, black troops, to their camps. And the equivalent of that day's version of a payday lender or a check casher or a rent-to-own store or a payday lender. And this abuse was uh, more insulting because these are folks who were fighting their freedom, literally in fighting against slavery, but they were never taught financial literacy. So this bank was chartered to, to put their money in one place, protect it, and then teach them about the free enterprise system, which was denied, a lesson that was denied of them uh, as part of being a slave. Lincoln was killed the next month. So he created the bank in March. By the way, there was 40 acres and a mule that was, that was chartered in, in Savannah, Georgia, two hours from where I am in Atlanta. January 1865. So to, to track you through this, January 1865, 50, Field Action 15 was chartered 40 acres and a mule. Uh, February, they worked the land so hard, somebody said, my God, give them a tractor. Like, I'm going to give them a mule, which is like saying give somebody a tractor. The next month, they came the bank to domicile their money to be able to invest in the land. And then uh, Lincoln's killed in April. My point here is that it's not that black people got the memo on free enterprise and capitalism and economics and ownership and screwed it up. We just never got the memo. And that is why African Caribbeans do better than African Americans in this wealth creation sector. Black African Americans do better in the income sector, uh, particularly in the arts, uh, um, professional sports and in the arts, music, TV, et cetera, uh, where the rules are published and playing field is level. But we do worse, actually in the wealth creation sector. And there's a difference between making money and building wealth. So my Caribbean African friends uh, of African descent have done better in wealth creation that is statistically uh, verifiable. The, my African African friends, as in the African continent, do better. Um, it's the African American experience because of slavery for 40 years and the story I just told you, even though we're super smart, that has kept us back. We have not created an economic system 
a holistic economic structure, including education, for the uplift of, of African Americans post slavery. And, and that, that Freedmen's Bank's failure in 1874, at the, you know, Frederick Douglass tried to run that bank, he, which, by the way, he was a real estate owner. People don't know that Frederick Douglass is, you know, really heralded to be a, an abolitionist and a civil rights leader. But he owned $6 million worth of real estate in Baltimore, Maryland, and he rented it out to working class blacks. By the way, very similar business that I am in today. That gave him the financial freedom to be a civil rights leader and gave him the financial capital to put $10,000 in that Freedmen's Bank before it failed. So, you know, you, and who, who talked to black people about money after Frederick Douglass? A hundred years later, it was Dr. King, not a banker, not a real estate entrepreneur, not, not a real estate you know, forum member like we're talking about here. You talk about a preacher preaching to people on the street about justice who's now talking about money and poverty eradication. Of course, he was assassinated mm-hmm. for the first march. So when you think about this in that context, it's a miracle we've done as well. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you can't fall from the floor. You can only go up. You know, our net worth is abysmal. Our savings rate is abysmal. Our hustle rate is unbelievable. I mean, it's nothing better than black folks hustle. Uh, But we just didn't get the memo on how to keep it versus to make it. And that's what I'm trying to deliver in my lifetime is to finish finish the work of the Freedmen's Bank. And that's why I have 160 locations right now doing financial coaching in 26 states. And we're about to launch, open another 80 offices on top of that. So I think that those statistics you gave about the future of Atlanta may be correct, but it, it, it also may be transformatively wrong if we can educate in mass people of color in their civil rights, S-I-L-V-E-R. I think that's a game changer. Get credit scores up 100 points neighborhood by neighborhood, the whole game changes. You can do that, you can do that in five or 10 years. Those points lead me right into my next question. As we wrap today, I'd like to end with one of my favorite parts of the interview. I like to ask each Honest Conversation guest the same two questions. What is your biggest area of concern for minority home ownership? And what can the industry do today to address this gap? The biggest uh, concern I have is that we buy homes like we purchase automobiles and we purchase automobiles like we purchase shoes at a department store, all of which is dangerous because we tend to ask, what's the payment? (laughs) What's the payment? You never ask what's the payment when there's an interest rate attached. And when you start putting zeros on the back end of the principal amount and you make the wrong decision because you're financially illiterate or financially undereducated, you've got, in many cases, an economic bomb on your hand. If you're driving down the street, listening to this program, and you've got a Mercedes, but it's at a, it's got an 18% interest note on it, that's not a Mercedes, that's Mercedes payments. Now you add another zero, sorry, you add another, uh, 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 yeah, zero or two to that. So let's just say one, add one zero, not 18,000, but 180,000 uh, at 18% or 15% or 12%. That's interest only, uh, or or worse, you know, you get to pick your payment, uh, which was a horrible product in the 2009, or reverse amortization. All these phrases most people don't know about. You know, you're 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 just something that should be an asset becomes an albatross around your neck. So financial literacy is everything. (laughs) 
I'm joking now, but I'm serious. When folks go to the club, once COVID's over, and you're at the club and you see some, you see the handsome dude, or you see the you see the cute girl, ask them what the credit score is, right? And so we we got to start asking deeper questions. We got to get serious. This is like as important as the right to vote because money interacts and intersects with your life from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. And I actually say overnight because you're not sleeping on a government pillow. We have got to just reimagine everything and begin to master this game. I want to throw this in here because this is about real estate and home ownership in particular. I was doing a show with Roland Martin and a lot of people who were calling in were saying that, you know, why should you own a home? You don't own the home. The bank does. I mean, this is the problem. Like this massive misinformation. No, the bank owns the debt. Even the debt that's called good debt is mortgage debt. It's, it's for, to an appreciating asset. You're going to write off the mortgage interest. You're going to you're going to benefit from, from the depreciation of the property and the appreciation of the property. Uh, tax policy was designed to benefit homeowners. But this is an example of the misinformation out there that, oh, no, you don't own that home. Uh, the bank owns it. No, not true. The bank owns it if you don't pay. But but that's good debt. No different than what a billionaire uses to buy a company. And we need to start using good debt to transform our life and to build generational wealth. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, John. You dropped a lot of knowledge on us today, and I'm so happy you joined us. My pleasure. Hope I helped. Thank you, John. Guests, join us next Wednesday for a season finale of Honest Conversations. Thank you again. Now, more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Elsina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. That's a wrap for today's episode of Housing Wire Daily. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, and join us again tomorrow.